ready, Bernie? You know it. All right, let's do it. Welcome, everyone, to Wolverheme Happy Hour. I'm Anthony Personati. And I'm Bernie Marini. We are hematology clinical pharmacists, and this is a podcast where we drink and we nerd out about data. All right, Bernie, what's on the agenda for today? So before we get started, we should probably talk about why we're doing this podcast. And I I think it boils down to, you know, we have a lot of opinions about data and there's so much to talk about. There's really not a great venue for it. You know, we can talk on Twitter, but you only get, you know, 200 to 300 characters and then you get stuck replying to a thousand people and it just gets, gets messy. So we thought this was a good place to come together, talk about data, uh, have some guests on occasionally to talk about, you know, other research and people from all over the country. So it should be a, a fun time. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, most of the things hopefully that we say are accurate. Um, but ultimately, sometimes there are going to be things that we say are probably wrong or misinterpreted. And that it's a perfect venue also for people to call us out and let us know, like, you, you didn't interpret this properly. Uh, we hope to do a better job than Joe Rogan with uh, spreading misinformation. <laughs> um, but again, call us out if, if we're if we're saying something that's that's not really appropriate. Um, you know, that's that's, you know, maybe, uh, you know, someone has a very different perspective and we're just wrong. That's how we're going to learn as well. Right. That's what makes it fun. Plus, it's a happy hour podcast, so it makes it even more fun. Exactly. So, I mean, the big question today, Bernie, is what are you drinking? Ooh, I have actually my homebrew today, uh, which is a, an IPA. It's supposed to be a, a two-hearted clone, but I call it six-pack Lataxel. <laughs> Doesn't get much nerdier than this. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's pretty nerdy. It's, uh, it's very hoppy, reminiscent to the Pacific Northwest where the Pacific yew tree grows. So very, <sighs> very important. How so about you? today... Yeah, so today I'm drinking bourbon because it's it is we just had a massive snowstorm here in Michigan, and it's keeping me nice, uh, nice and warm and fuzzy inside. Surviving snowmageddon. What what bourbon do you got? Blanton's. Ooh, the good it is stuff. my yeah, it's my favorite. It's Perfect. a special occasion, our first podcast. So yeah, I mean that you know bernie kind of articulated why he wanted to start the podcast but really the real reason is bernie has become famous uh with podcasts <laughs> he's been on multiple podcasts he's been on plenary no. sessions so many times and he's getting traction all across the world so what what what's the next steps after you've you know become famous is well you split from the band and you go solo and so that's why bernie's <laughs> creating his <laughs> uh so but bernie um you know, jokes aside, I didn't tell you this, but last week I got an email from someone in Croatia who oh. saw you, heard you on the plenary session and, you know, um, had some questions about how we're treating secondary AML. So your anti-CPX351 rhetoric has gone global. Uh, and so, you know, jokes aside, you you certainly have uh, made some headway on your podcast. So I, I, you know, I'm happy to be along with the ride with with your fame. <laughs> no, it's it's, uh, it's not just me, it's a, this is a team effort. So, you know, I needed to, to get the, the Wolverheim team back together so we could uh, tackle this together and, and spread the spread the word of oncologic stewardship. I love it. So what's on the agenda for today? So today we're going to be talking about a paper that I think generated a lot of hype and I think is very, very misinterpreted. So this paper is titled Response Rate, Event-Free Survival and Overall Survival in Newly Diagnosed Acute Myeloid Leukemia. This is the US FDA trial level and patient level analysis. Good old so surrogate when you... endpoints. <laughs> 
Yeah. So yeah, that's exactly it. When you sent me this paper uh, and you're like, oh, we should write a letter to the editor because this is such a terrible paper. Uh, the first <laughs> thought in my head was, oh my God, not again, Bernie. Uh, and, you know, I immediately thought of, you know, you being on plenary and I was like, oh, Bernie Prasad at it again with the surrogate no, markers. No. <laughs> I, I, I think this is an important paper because I think this is going to be cited all over the place. So I think it deserves yeah, totally. a discussion. You know, and I, I I did read it, and I I wholeheartedly agree with you. This this is this is a dangerous paper uh, to get out there and misinterpret what the findings are. Mm -hmm. So we should probably go over the uh, the study design and, and kind of it. what they did first. Um, so essentially, what what they did is they they looked at you know is event free survival and is overall or is event free survival and complete response rate a good surrogate. Uh, endpoint for overall survival. And what they did is they took data um, that was submitted to the FDA as part of a new drug application from 2007 to 2017 for newly diagnosed AML. So these had to be randomized uh, multi-center trials in induction and consolidation chemotherapy in newly diagnosed AML, but only during that 10-year time period. What do you, what do you think about that? Uh, and you also said they had to be submitted to the FDA. Yep. <laughs> so pretty much anything that was trialed that was not submitted to the FDA because it probably wasn't, uh, you know, a, a good study uh, or had the outcomes that they wanted and therefore you wouldn't send to the FDA were not included. Yeah. So if you had to just ballpark guess how many trials we've conducted in AML over a decade, even though this weirdly is just 2007 to 2017, last time I checked, it's 2022. Um, how many how many trials would you think? Oh God, I mean, I would think that it would have to be in the hundreds, right? Over yeah. that time period, has yeah. to be. So I did a I did a quick PubMed search, dirty search, probably has some non-relevant trials, and there were 416 results. Jeez, they, they included eight studies in Come this meta-analysis. Eight studies which is just, it's missing half of the data. I mean, more than half the data, it's missing all of the AML data of other randomized trials that have been conducted in the setting. So before we even start, this is massively cherry picking data. Okay, uh, so of, of the like 400 and something trials that have been conducted, you said roughly about eight studies were included. What studies were actually included in this analysis? Yeah, so of the, the studies that were included, there were, uh, I think five studies of gemtuzumab, uh, including the alpha 0701 trial, which we know is the, the main trial that showed a survival uh, benefit to gemtuzumab. Uh, one mitostorin study, the ratify trial, and then two Vixio studies. And that's it. Everything else was not included. Um, so I'm sure the audience can think of a number of different trials and randomized trials that have been conducted in newly diagnosed AML that are not included here. In addition, we know that, and, and I'm sure a lot of you have seen, there are a lot of flaws with these studies that are included. We know that gemtuzumab data is flawed because of inappropriate comparators. Um, we know that the updated alpha 0701 data isn't in this meta-analysis. Um, we know that the mitostorin data has some flaws as well. And the Vixios data, everybody knows how I feel about that. That's one of the, the worst studies that's been conducted in a number of years. So the studies and, they included are poor. 
And Bernie, the updated analysis of alpha, you you kind of pointed that out. Why why is that important that the updated analysis was not included, but the the original analysis was? Yeah, so the the original analysis showed both an event-free survival difference and an overall survival difference of the addition of gemtuzumab to standard therapy. But the updated analysis upon further follow-up, and this was published in Hematologica later, showed no difference in overall survival despite that event-free survival advantage. So that's so important based on what we're talking about today. And to not include that is, is crazy. I mean, they don't cite it anywhere in here, so I assume this isn't in here. Yeah, it's like double cherry picking, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you can name just sort of off the top of your head things that, you know, probably should have been included. Like thinking about mitostorin, what about all that serafinib data, like SOAR AML? We know yep. that serafinib improves event-free survival, but not overall survival. We've got all the clofarabine data. There's other gemtuzumab studies that for some reason are not included, you know, different anthracyclines. There's just a host of data that is missing from this analysis. Yeah, so I guess just to summarize some basic principles here, when you're doing this type of analysis, number one, I think your take home is don't cherry pick data. And what you mean by that is, you know, you can't just include trials that were submitted to the FDA because they were submitted for an, a reason. They were submitted because they thought that they had, you know, good uh, results for that would merit uh, an approval, right? Um, and most of them uh, had an overall survival benefit as as their metric, right? So here you're really you're, you're really cherry picking from 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 that aspect. The other thing is even even the trials that were selected, there's significant flaws with those trials. So when we're when we're doing these types of analysis, we need to make sure that, like to your point, we need appropriate control arms. Um, you need adequate post-protocol therapy. And so whenever you have these studies and you're putting in uh, studies, they have to be good studies. So crap in equals crap out. Exactly. So well said. So, yeah, I mean, so that, that's a big issue. You know, the other issue that I, I saw was the statistics, right? Mm -hmm. um, when, when you look at their models, uh, I don't know if you, you, you saw like the granularity of their, their R squared or their coefficient of determination. Um, you know, I think, I think it was like 0 0.87 for, for their one model that they ended up choosing. Mm -hmm. So then, you know, it begs the question, well, what is a good coefficient of determination. Um, I, I, I couldn't find any consensus as to what constitutes a, an acceptable correlation. Um, do, do you know, Bernie? Yeah, there was that. I mean, I don't know the right answer, but there was yeah. in their discussion section, they talked about how um, that one quality group out of Europe said that you, you ideally, if you're trying to prove something is a is a surrogate endpoint. The Institute for Quality and Efficiency in Healthcare wants a ninety five percent confidence interval to be greater than 0.85. and this doesn't greater even come close. Yep. So the so the ninety five percent confidence interval greater than 0.5. But what about like just the R squared, the the coefficient of determination? Do they do they? I think have any. I think that's what they want. They want the whole R squared confidence interval to exceed eighty five percent. Gotcha. 0.85. Got, 
Yep. Yeah. So some things that I've read, and, and again, there's no consensus. Every every paper you read, there's a little bit different. So some will say a 0.8 or greater is considered to have strong correlation. And therefore, if you have a model above 0.8, um, you could then say that EFS is a good surrogate. Mm -hmm. um, some say, you know, 0.8 is just not enough and it needs to be as high as 0.95. Um, in this study, it's 0.87. So it's kind of like in between. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think the, the other point that you're making is also the 95% confidence interval. Mm -hmm. um, and this model had uh, the lower bound was 0 0.47. So this is not even close to, you know, being a strong, it's not even, you know, per all these definitions wouldn't even be considered a, a medium uh, correlation, right? It, it is yeah. like lowest of low correlation. Um, so based off of their their confidence interval, I think I, I would conclude that EFS is not a good surrogate for overall survival. Is that how you interpreted this? Yeah. And I and I think this is this is really confusing, right? Because wasn't there there's there's like three or four different definitions of EFS that they look at here. Yep. Right. So they have their primary definition, which is treatment failure, relapse from CR or death. Yep. But they don't include in there CRI or CRP or any other response definitions. And that's mm -hmm. the one that they called their primary analysis, right? Yep. So I guess, let me ask you this. How would you define uh, event-free survival? Would you say that a patient who does not attain a CRI or a CRP, would you consider that patient a failure? Yeah. I think if they don't achieve a response period, they're a failure, right? Yep. Um, I think what's what's tricky to me is you can't have it both ways. Like we can't have all these studies that say CRI and CRP are also important, but then let's just ignore them in event-free survival and only look at CR and call the CRI, CRPs failures. We, we can't mm -hmm. have it both ways. Yeah, totally. So I guess let's think of this like in a, a real world example. Let's say you give three plus seven, mm -hmm. you do a day 28 marrow, you know, no morphologic evidence of leukemia, but they haven't recovered their platelets. So this is a patient with a, you know, a CRP. Yeah. Would you then say, well, this patient is refractory to three plus no. seven. They are a treatment failure. No. We must pull them off study. We must discontinue their protocol. We need to, instead of move on to HIDAC consolidation, they must be reinduced with MEC or Flagida. Would you do that in real practice? No chance. That's right? that's a really good way to look at it. Like no one would define that as a treatment failure in a study like that. Right. Because you'd take that patient maybe to transplant and they'd have a great outcome. Like yep. you can't. Yeah, that's a that's a poor definition of treatment failure. Yeah. And so that their model one with mm -hmm. this nice high uh, R squared of 0 0.87, they excluded patients that that exact patient that attained a CRP or a CRI. So if you actually uh, define EFS the way that we do, where you know CRI and CRP would not be considered a treatment failure, when you do that, their R squared dropped to 0 0.59. So this would be in the realm of you know pretty poor correlation uh, between uh, EFS and, and OS. And you know, in, in fairness, the authors did acknowledge that based off of their analysis that they cannot conclude that there is a strong uh, uh, surrogacy of event-free survival for overall survival. So uh, 
despite cherry picking the best of the best of the best data and using a model uh, based off of a definition that we don't use, um, you know, despite all of that, they still concluded that EFS is not a good surrogate marker. Yeah. But they kind of went a little bit further, and this is where I, I kind of got lost, was um, they didn't really seem to care. They essentially <laughs> said, yeah, you know what? We, we did prove that um, EFS is not a good surrogate for overall survival, but you know what? We don't really care uh, because EFS by itself, irrespective of an overall survival benefit to us is clinically meaningful, and that by itself should uh, allow drugs to be FDA approved. What do you think about that, Bernie? I mean, I think that's insane. I, I also <laughs> think it's, I mean, I like that the authors wrote that. I mean, they wrote the truth, right? They said, we yeah. can't conclude that EFS is a good surrogate for overall survival. I, I don't think people are reading that sentence because it's lost Agreed. in the claims that, that you're saying they also made, which is, you know, we don't really care. EFS is important to, even though, you know, our confidence intervals are huge and it might not be predictive at all, you know, EFS is important because maybe it's a marker of, you know, better quality of life. But I think if you're going to make that claim, like EFS is important because people aren't relapsed and they feel better, then you have to show that that's also a surrogate for quality of life. And we don't, we don't have that data, right? We want people to live longer and live better. And we still don't have that data. And this paper does not show that. Yeah, totally. Well, just to play devil's advocate though, um, do we even have that information with improving overall survival, right? Mm -mm. So for example, because right. you just said, well, you know, EFS doesn't mean a whole lot to me unless you're improving quality of life. Well, how do you know that overall survival improved uh, also with, you know, improving quality of life, right? And so just because you're prolonging overall survival, are you just prolonging death? So I think you can make the same argument, no, that EFS without quality of life, overall survival without better quality of life. Why, why is overall survival okay to not have quality of life benefit? I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a balance. I think if you're, if you have a drug that improves overall survival, you're also improving event-free survival, right? I mean, the, these arguments are tied hand in hand, and I think quality of life is important regardless. You know, maybe something improves overall survival by a couple months but patients feel like crap. That's not a great drug, right? But that same argument is the argument against using EFS as a surrogate marker. Yeah. So I, I think that that's the argument that people are making and it's completely circular logic. I think, you know, at the end of the day, we want people to live longer and live better. And we can't say that if we, if we improve EFS, but not OS, we're going to make people live better. If you want to show that, that's a completely different analysis. And I think that would be great but we've got to do that analysis. Yeah, no, I totally yeah. agree. You know, I, one of the other, I guess, trying to think of things from the other perspective as well, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, you're right. When you're doing these types of analyses, um, event-free survival is definitely impacted by less things, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas overall survival is impacted by, you know, post-protocol therapy or, you know, patients dying from something else, right? A cardiovascular complication or something, right? So is EFS a better measure of your drug that you're using right now as opposed to overall survival? Yeah, I think I, I, I hear that argument. And I think that's one of the arguments that was made in the companion sort of commentary paper was that, you know, EFS is affected by post-protocol therapy and other things. 
but that's important. Like we don't treat patients in a vacuum. Like we don't just care about treatment one and then that's it. We kind of say, la, 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 don't care what happens after, right? Like it's important to know in each arm what people got afterward. I mean, if I need to give treatment one and it's better tolerated and then treatment two and I make them live longer or just as long versus if I give one treatment and I make them feel like crap, but their event-free survival is longer, that, that other treatment isn't, isn't any better, even though the event-free survival might be better in that individual case. Yeah. So again, still thinking from the other perspective, I want to kind of push on that, that vacuum analogy. So let's think of it from, you know, again, a real world example. Let's say you do three plus seven and you use gemtuzumab. Mm -hmm. With those arguments, you would say, hey, yes, there's a massive event-free survival benefit with adding gemtuzumab, but there is no difference in overall survival because of post-protocol therapy, because you've now been able to salvage that patient with additional therapy. And you're thinking, well, quality of life is worse because you're giving gemtuzumab. But again, you can't think of it in a vacuum, right? right. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking from the other yep, perspective yep. here, just, just to push you. Um, the second half of that patient who, who does fail uh, you know, three plus seven needs to be salvaged with yeah. some, yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and not even just flag, but like, you know, something intense like Flagida or mech. I mean, think about those patients that are in our hospital for at least a month, some even longer getting horrible mucositis, um, you know, in and out of the ICU with this intensive salvage. Are you preventing more patients from requiring those intensive therapies on salvage by giving them gemtuzumab up front. And then furthermore, what do you have to do after you give Flygida or MEC? You gotta take them to an allo transplant. So are you preventing, you know, not only like intensive therapy, um, but also uh, uh, allogeneic stem cell transplant, which has, you know, significant uh, implications with quality of life, right? Yeah, I think, I think that brings up two things. I think the first thing is that all of our AML studies lack good quality of life assessments. They're terrible. Totally. Like we we need that throughout the treatment course. They need to do a better job, not like a half-assed job, like you know some of these oral maintenance studies. We need to do a better job of quality of life analysis. The second part of that that I think people miss when they make that argument is that you're assuming that if I give standard of care therapy, that you're assuming that every single patient is gonna require second and third line therapy. And that's not that's true. Right, like because you're over treating every yep. single patient to prevent a small fraction from requiring a second line therapy. That has to be taken into consideration. And I think that's that's sort of like the hyperbole argument that people make, mm -hmm. right? Like if I don't give gemtuzumab, they will all relapse and they'll all require mech. And wouldn't I avoid that if I give more intensive therapy up front? Maybe, but maybe you've just added toxicity, and now that patient's going to have also. A horrible outcome so i think yeah yeah I, I totally think i mean you're setting you're, me up you're, there <laughs> yeah no i i mean i'm i'm trying to think of alternative arguments right because right. there's all there's multiple different perspectives of this and mm -hmm. and and those are sound arguments um but i think your argument of well you're you're only going to have to use mech or flag or an aloe in a, in a much smaller percentage than giving every single 100% of patients gemtuzumab, right? Right, right. So, so I, I totally get it. Um, all right, so that was a lot of information. Uh, yeah. Anything else about the study or we wanna, we wanna summarize? Well, first of all, let's take a drink here and cheers. Yeah, yeah, great, I need another. Great work, Bernard. Cheers, good, good, uh, good first discussion here. Um, I think this is a, 
an important study overall. And I think, you know, I give them credit in that, you know, this is an important question, but I think someone needs to do this better. Like someone could take the data of interventions that have been done in AML and actually show, is this a surrogate or not? I mean, it's a, it's an important question, but this trial essentially showed that EFS was not a good surrogate for overall survival. And we didn't even talk about like, this is only young fit patients. This has nothing to do with data in the relapse setting. This has nothing to do with older patients or low intensity therapies. So this is missing sort of like the majority of patients that we're treating. Oh yeah, absolutely. We should not, uh, it, let's say your takeaway was that EFS is a good surrogate for overall survival. We, and that should not be the takeaway, but it, let's say it was, we cannot extrapolate these data to yeah. relapse refractory setting or to say an HMA VEN based regimen or a low intensity regimen or a, you know, IDH based regimen, that would be completely inappropriate. Perfect. So summarizing this trial, they tried to show that EFS was a good surrogate for overall survival. They essentially showed that EFS was not a good surrogate for overall survival. Even if you ignore that, there's flaws with the data they included. They cherry pick data and their EFS definitions don't really reflect what we would think is EFS in clinical practice. Does that kind of summarize it? That's what I took away from it as well. Excellent. Well, I think I think this is a good uh, good first episode. Uh, should we uh, leave it there? Let's do it. Awesome. Until next time. All right. Cheers. Ciao.